You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. This is Encyclopedia. Thank you very much to Freedom of Species. Back next week, same time, one o'clock. If you want more information on anything you heard in the show, Freedom of Species at 3cr.org.au. Just find the program pages and follow the links there. Subscribe to the podcast, follow social media. Do the same for us while you're there. On the show this afternoon, two panels. Actually, one is a question and a uh, Q&A session um, from the uh, event Lifesaver or False Comfort held by the Pennington Institute at the Melbourne Multicultural Hub um, about pill testing with David uh, Caldicott uh, from Pill Testing Australia and Andrew Levy, the Marketing Director of Safe Work Laboratories, answering some questions from the audience. Also, the uh, Dosed Movie uh, panel from Sunday the 29th of uh, July. Dosedmovie.com is the website if you want to go find out more about that movie and sign up for updates so you can watch it if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, so please enjoy the afternoon. Um, also, come and find us. We're just up the road at 60 Smith Street for Sci School this afternoon. Uh, it's, an, uh, it's an event, I think it's $10 or $15 to get in. Uh, we'll be there with the Australian Psychedelic Society and Students for Sensible Drug Policy, so drop by, say hello, and uh, getting straight into it with um, a question from myself <laughs> at the event, Lifesaver or False Comfort on Pill Testing uh, at the Melbourne Multicultural Hub. This is 3CR. Um, I, I, thought, I thought this debate was going to go differently. It doesn't actually feel like there's been a debate per se over pill testing, it looks like a debate over methods, over what we should be doing, what we should be putting out there. And it's been really interesting to see you uh, live, Andrew, in particular, because I've seen a lot of things over the years uh, of reporting about things yeah. that you've said, and I know that the media can be a bit tricky and take one part of a two-hour-long conversation, you just go, guys, serious? Uh, and I feel like maybe that's happened to you a bit, I don't know uh, for sure, but um, uh, I guess I'm wondering um, what, what kind of model would you uh, support them? Because it sounds like that if there were a model, I mean, it almost sounds like you might support a legalised model where we can actually do that quality control testing before a product reaches the market, before it reaches out there, which is, I mean, that's that's pretty revolutionary. Yeah, well, well, it is. And uh, look, I I don't want to speak out of turn because I'm not authorised to do so, but I've had conversations with a number of uh, state and federal politicians, okay, and their view is that politically, uh, the concept of a central lab type model of some flavour around that, if, if everyone in this room was to say, look, we want to get pill testing started, I would I would start there. Because it seems that that's, that's a view. Now, that's just my view from having a couple of conversations. I, I, I didn't want to reference it here because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not that best. But it... It does remove. I guess if you've got a central type lab model, it's not it's not going to help because people have to take their drugs beforehand at a music festival, and I acknowledge that's not what people do. But it means that there isn't any scientific or analytical or technical argument against pill testing. It just becomes a straight out political debate. Does that help? Yeah, look, I've just got a follow-up question for that uh, there. Uh, I think Nick's question was, would you support um, legalisation of pills? Because we would actually know what was in it. It would reduce harm. Um, there would be an evidence base behind it. Um, I think that was Nick's question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, 
that would only be my personal opinion. Personally, I, I wouldn't support legalising all um, uh, pills. I mean, legalised pill, pill testing, of course, but legalising all pills, simply because, uh, look, there's, there's always going to be, and I'm going to refer to you here, there's always going to be um, some of the new designs. If we're talking too far by infomy, you can't legalise that. Well, you can't make that. You can't make that consumption safe, really. Well, let's just talk about MDMA so, because that's yeah. So I was going to say. So then you have to. Then the, what the debate is is where do you draw the line? And I think perhaps getting slightly off topic. Where do you where do you draw the line at legalisation? You say, well, cannabis is a no-brainer. Then we can look at MDMA. Then we can look at some other things. But I think there's always going to, have to be a level at which you say these particular compounds are just lethal. You know, there's a 20% chance that anyone takes it's going to die. I don't know that you can ever legalise that. So you, so the debate then becomes where do you draw that line rather than so is that actually the case with MDMA, that 20% of people die? No, no, sorry, I'm talking about some of the new psychoactive substances. Okay, but I, I, we were talking about MDMA, I think, because um, that's the primary drug that people are wishing to take. That's the MDMA is the primary drug that people are wishing to take. So with MDMA, um, looking at that being made safer for people who are wishing to use pills, uh, would that be possible um, that we could do that? And, and have that legalised because that's what currently people are wanting to be taking. Yeah, well, I mean, my, my opinion is the same as anyone else's in the room on that. You know, I, I don't have any particular expertise on that. Look, it's a debate about pill testing rather than. Personally, I I think that you know it's going to be it's it's a dangerous drug in certain environments, but whether or not you want to legalise it, that's not me. So. Steph. Um, So um, certainly, I think I think I'm a real fan of the loop and the sort of the, the information they provide because it's really timely and it's really accurate and it's actually quite like geographically. Um, it's not just you know across the country. So I think something along those lines in Australia would be of great benefit. You know they're using FTIR. Don't you? What are they doing about determining dose? Wet extraction. Yeah. Okay. And look, uh, and, and also when it comes to like portable GCMS, yes. Look, the, look, technology is evolving. When, when I, I, I've been, I, I saw my first portable GCMS prototype in about 2005, and I was told it's going to be widely available two or three years later. Um, without going too much down the weeds, it depends. Like GCMS, uh, if it's a basic drug or an acidic drug, you need to treat it entirely differently to get a, a, an accurate result. It's hard to do with unknown, so you're basically running it two or three times. It's, um, portable GCMS and various other technologies are improving all the time, and but for the sake of this discussion, really, we're still on the same zone where a quicker and less um, analytical test is going to be less accurate. Now, whether that's a difference between ninety nine percent, ninety seven percent, or ninety nine point nine and eighty percent varies tremendously on the drugs and the impurities and everything else. But but you know. 
technology is getting better, but I still maintain that if you're getting a result in 15 or 20 minutes, you are sacrificing something along the way. That's, that's just inevitable. There's no way around it. So to be clear, given your enthusiasm for the loop, you think that an FTIR approach with a wet extraction is perfectly acceptable? Can you, can you? Yeah. So um, uh, Andrew has uh, spoken to his enthusiasm for the loop, which uses exactly the same uh, technology that we do with a further step, which is wet extraction. Well, presumably you knew that. Um, the, um, so Be nice, David. I'm always nice. So you would think that if we yeah. introduce that um, uh, extra step, that would be acceptable? No, because you still... Um, but you just said that you liked I, I, I love the concept of the loop providing the high quality information. In which is being done with that technology that you're not sure about. And uh, you'll also find that no matter what subsequent steps you're doing to your FTIR, those issues remain at low levels, like less than 10% or so, mm. you're not going to see them. But the stuff that the loop is doing is fine. Yeah, the, the concept of, okay, if you like the... So the, the FTIR with the wet extraction step is what we should be doing because I'm happy David, to do that, that's cool. David, you can put as many words as you like into my... They're your words. Yes, indeed. Um, but the point is that the providing of the information in real time, I think, has value. Um, using FTIR with any other issues, those, those, it's just a fundamental aspect of the technology. Right? It, it's, it's just how it works, okay? It, it means that... Um, it's the vibe. No, it, <laughs> it, the issue is that it's not going to detect small amounts of contaminants, right? Small, small amounts of other drugs. And it's not going to give um, accurate and reliable information when it comes to poly drug mixes. Okay, so is it providing more information than users currently have? Yes. Is there a better technology out there? Oh, shit, yes. No Right. So, so if you're asking me, why don't you support a, te a technology which you know has inaccuracies and liabilities when you know that there's a better model out there? Well, I'm going to choose a better model. Mate, we all. One thing I've noticed in the media coverage of this issue is that there is much distinction between deaths from drug overdoses and deaths from contaminated drugs, or like other problems in the actual drugs. So this is a question for all three of you. What are your thoughts on the differences between these and especially the differences in how pill testing can address each of them? Yeah. Great question. So this is a terribly important question, um, and drug deaths are extraordinarily complicated uh, events. They're universally tragic. They happen to an age group that should not be done. Um, they involve a wide variety of factors, which include the drug, but aren't limited to the drug. They include the environment in which they're consumed. They include the, uh, what is happening to the individual um, at that time. Uh, when they consume that drug. Um, and I think if we were offering or suggesting, or that if anybody in the world was suggesting that pill testing was like turning up at a delicatessen counter and taking a ticket and then being provided with the results and allowing them to contextualize their own drug consumption on the basis of that mere result, that could be a problem. But in fact, pill testing is so much more than that. You have very highly trained peer counsellors who spend all of their weekends dealing with people who are drug affected. You might have an elderly doctor who might know something about it as well. Um, all of whom are in a position to modify behaviour at the point of consumption. So pill testing absolutely 
can change the nature of drug deaths that might or might not occur in the festival environment. I think the more the merrier. If we have drug checking or pill testing at a um, uh, an in, uh, drug consumption room, brilliant. We should be looking at that. We should be looking out for fentanyl. I think we should have a static site as well. But we are very certain that the real secret sauce of pill testing is that consultation, is that ability not just to affect the individual who's consuming the drug, but by extension, by infection, affecting the entire market in which those drugs are being consumed. So just set, setting up um, a central monitoring system, um, you've already got one. You've got your Victorian uh, 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 Drugs Reference Laboratory, the nature of which the analyses are never shared. You know, that doesn't change behavior. You need to have that interaction. Um, and so I think a lot of what Andrew is talking about from a technical perspective, there are, there are reasonable arguments from his perspective. They don't at all factor in the multiple natures of things involved in drug-related deaths or human behavior for that matter. And the people who own that, the human behavior and the modification of human behavior of the dance world as well. Look, to me, it, it, that's what it seems like, that the, the value in pill testing is that interaction with the individual. Right? And so, and I guess that's, I mean, that's not at all my field, but I can certainly see the benefit in talking to somebody about what it means. As I said, you know, when, if you're talking MDMA and it's a 45 degree day, I'm sure you advise them to sit down and, you know, if they can start getting warm and, you know, heat, heat injury is a real killer. So there's all those things that are somewhat peripherally related to how we actually test. But I guess the, the pill testing is the lure to a certain extent to get people to come in and have that conversation. That's not unfair, I think. That's uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, we're talking about um, the model of getting uh, that conversation. Perhaps um, the only thing I would say is that still, you can still square that circle with, with better analytical techniques, albeit um, several days is still going to be a problem. But you can, you can actually have a conversation with the person with exact knowledge of what's in that you know, And then all my arguments go away. I'll go off and scurry back to my lab. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, from personal experience and having gone through seven years of uh, without my son and listening to everybody and doing a lot of reading, I really think that uh, if there was pure testing, drug checking services, Daniel would have used it. I think the idea of having this holistic approach to harm reduction, the discussion with the person, I think it does change behaviour. I think that uh, not everyone makes the right decision, uh, unlike my, uh, my son who did. He made the wrong decision of not telling people where he was going. He took something that he didn't hadn't taken for a few years. Obviously it was stronger, I don't know. Uh, but he, the sequence was that he took other things to counteract it. Now, had he had that discussion with um, with other people, there's a good possibility, like hospital, if you go into a hospital with something, you've got to stay there for four hours. And I think that the duty of care would be in these um, in this particular instance. You come in, you're impaired. I'm sorry, you just can't go anywhere. It's as simple as that. It's, it's that simple. And I've, I've heard you guys talk and I'm really respectful but you know what we've got nothing now <laughs> I'm happy for somebody to you know
tested somewhere else? Have you there? Do both. I don't care. Just do something. Because right now we have Hi there. Um, I'd just like to start off by saying I'm representing uh, a lot of young people on behalf of the Hurt Not Harm, which is a campaign by SSDP. Um, we feel it's really important that in a debate that primarily affects young people, uh, that our voices are heard. So I want to say I'm not speaking myself, but of the entire SSDP organisation and everyone so far who's supported our, our mission. Uh, and Andrew, you raised a really interesting point that I think is worth um, just sort of side mentioning here, which is that the majority of drug overdoses and deaths in this country do not occur at festivals. That is absolutely true. Uh, and that would be actually a great argument for um, pill testing again, because we don't want just pill testing at festivals. We would like to see a central model, as you've discussed, and I think that would save so many more lives than have been uh, calculated thus far. So thank you for, for raising that point. And thank you also for being here today. I think it takes a certain level of bra bravery to be here. David's going to buy me a beer up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, my question is, um, we've heard your views and you say you're not in opposition to pill testing, uh, per se. Um, and I'm just wondering, with you know 31 countries worldwide, I think it's, I can't remember how many European countries, um, with the, the Australian Medical Association, the head of former head of the Australian Medical Association, uh, Karen Phelps, and so many others coming out in support of pill testing now. And most importantly, and this is where I'm speaking for myself and countless young people around the country, when you have the affected community speaking out, how can you continue to oppose this measure? Yeah, I, perfectly valid question. And I, I, like I said, I, I'm not, don't make me the, uh, the, um, uh, antithesis of everyone's argument for why they don't want to have pill testing. I think that the point that I'd like to make is that whether or not we do pill testing is a political decision ultimately at the end of the day. And I'm not a politician, right? So I'm not entering that debate, you know, at all. The only reason I'm I'm in the debate is I'm trying to ensure that we we are aware of what we are debating, what what can pill testing what can it tell us and what can't it tell us? What, what are some of the considerations that we might need to think about, you know, in terms of... I mean, and they're, they're pretty, you know, boring topics. How are we going to fund them? Who, how are we going to staff them? You know, how, how are we going to meet the logistics and, and, and all those sorts of things? So I, there's no doubt that there's broad community support for field testing. So my, the only reason I've entered the debate is to try and ensure that we're, that we're all fully informed in that debate. But, but as to which way it's going to go, that's... Write letters to your politicians, ring them up, you know. Go uh, go crazy. Get marching the streets. Yeah, yeah. Five up petition. Yeah. that for a non answer? It sounds like a very politician sort of answer, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> I'm not running for politics. I'm not a member of any political party. <laughs> oh, can I? Oh, yeah. I've got to zoom out now. This is a, might seem a bit of a choose points. My name's Peter, Peter Wound, I'm currently unemployed. Um, I wonder whether the issue isn't really a health issue here, but a human rights issue. Mm -hmm. And the thing that um, I get concerned about in debates around drug law reform and how we manage uh, people's behaviours to keep them safe in our society is uh, I would rather have no tyrants than any tyrant running my life. And as a health debate, 
it runs the risk of becoming a new type of tyranny that we measure people, people's behaviour around. So I would rather see this as why and on what basis do we actually say to people, we are vested in what you do in your personal and private life, and then go and make whatever those choices are as dangerous as possible for them, where we do have to intervene to save their lives or bury them. So my point here is, pill testing is another example, another example of us being very confused about what we're really arguing about. And I see this whole, whole debate very clearly in my dotage of becoming an old man as being around human rights, not health rights. And it's the dignity and human rights of and it's, you know, my, my friend and colleague who talked about young people. If you look at the overdose statistics in Australia, there is a great set of people my age and older that are overdosing every day, needlessly. And they're mainly overdosing on legalised prescribed medication that has been irresponsibly prescribed to them and never checked up on. So, so to me, this is a really important debate. I don't see a lot of difference in what people are saying, but whatever we can do to save a life, Whatever we can do to, to support people's humanity and dignity must be, must be the thing that we go for. And I, I thought, to the lady that spoke earlier, I've heard you speak before, I just want to commend you for your courage in speaking in forums like this. I, I, I think uh, you're a living treasure. Thank you very much. It wasn't a question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Down here, somewhere. I don't know what you say. Uh, uh, speaking checks it off in the front row. Oh, thank you. Over here. Sorry, you oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Front row. Right there. Hello. Fine, thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for this. I, I have really appreciated it. And the, the conversation has been very alive in Parliament this week. And one of the on one of your first slides, Andrew, you spoke about the very small number of people who die from uh, drug-related deaths at, at music festivals, and this this yes, and, and, and I, I, exactly, and, and this troubles me because this is actually what I'm starting to hear. This is starting to be one of the arguments against any form of health intervention, such as a supervised um, uh, pill testing, and. I've heard it from police now and I've heard it from politicians that, oh, but really only six have died. Now, I, I'm, I'm concerned if that starts to become part of the conversation and I'm, I guess I'm, I would, would appreciate your comments that, you know, if would we ever say that in any other circumstance, whether it was an asthma attack or something else, would we ever say, but oh, but it was just, it was only six and far more people die on the roads anyway. Yeah, well, and, and, and you won't get that argument from me no. uh, at all, but, uh, but, but I do take... pointing out that fact. Yeah, no, no, I, I, it's perfectly valid. And look, I'm, I'm aware that I'm standing here trying to talk about analytics and precision yeah. in a debate. I'm sitting next to Adriana, and I'm aware this is a debate about compassion and empathy, right? I'm not... Uh, I'm not immune to that. So, but, but, but my only expertise is in that area. So, honestly, I guess the, the reason I mentioned it was not in any way to diminish. And the other point I'd like to make is, look, the sixth death, but there's 
umpteen hundred hospitalizations, mm. right? And I have not had to stand in front of the parents uh, whose son or daughter's been three or four days in an ICU ward with every orifice taped up and tubed and everything else. And David's had to do that, right? So that's not something that's in my experience. But that kind of goes by the wayside. How many people get hospitalised? How many people spend three or four days in hospital, you know, for these sorts of things? Well, I guess the only reason I'm debating it, we're trying to put all that into debate, is let's not talk about saving two lives out of those six. Let's talk about saving 200 out of that 400. You know, it, and if we restrict it to only music festivals, we're talking about that that narrow slice rather than the broader issue. Yeah. Does that sound like an opposition? No. Yeah. <laughs> if I may just add to that, of course, um, there is a debate, and a, and a, um, an appropriate debate, about whether or not um, pill testing saves lives. Um, my own belief um, is that it probably does by changing behaviour. Um, the uh, more important thing is, is that it changes people's behaviour. So the purpose of pill testing isn't merely to save people's lives. The purpose of pill testing is to change an entire generation's approach to drugs. It's far more ambitious. Now, we based our campaign last year on we should just do anything to save just one life. I still believe that. But the knock-on effects of pill testing in jurisdictions where they occur, it changes the market, it changes the relationship of young people with drugs, it changes the ability for an older generation to have a dialogue with a younger generation about drugs. Um, if you want to be brutal, and there is a brutality in politics at the moment, does anybody know what the cost of a human life is, according to PMNC? Did you read the monthly? Yeah, yeah. It's $200,000. That's what the cost of a life is, $200,000 per annum. So you could, you could argue that even saving one life of somebody who dies at the age of 25 could flow on to a saving of millions of dollars over the course of their lost life. I, I don't believe in those sort of arguments. I think they're crap, they're crass, um, but some people use those arguments. It's the overall effect of pill testing in behavioral change, and indeed where we've seen it for long enough, societal change, that is what counts. Um, I just wanted to refer to one thing that you said, Andrew, about um, people not wanting to give a whole pill for testing so that you can't have a proper result. I mean, I, I'm lucky enough that I worked with David at Grooving the Moo and I've done work with The Loop. I'm a harm reduction worker. And people do give whole pills. So you'll get kind of groups of people who clump together who will, you know, yeah, my whole pill together. Um, I just also wanted to agree with David that I think the harm reduction work that we do on site of those things is, is probably more important than the pill yeah, testing yeah. because we're giving tailored harm reduction information to people who've maybe never spoken to anyone in the sector before and who don't realise that um, there's many of us who are approachable and nice and, and have a lot of knowledge and can actually um, help them have a better experience. Like, So we're not actually going to say to them, you shouldn't take drugs, but we're going to try and make sure that they actually enjoy the festival that they've paid 350 bucks 
before. Um, and I just wanted to, while we have Fiona Patton in the room, who is a politician, I just wanted to ask Fiona, what do we need to do in Victoria to change the mind of Parliament? Like, what can we do? Pay lots of money. Well, look, it's a, it's a, it's a great. It's a great question, and, um, and and I didn't ask as good a question in Parliament this week, but I did ask. The Premier says that it's just common sense and logic that we wouldn't do it. Um, the, the Health Minister says the police tell us not to do it, so we think that's a bloody good reason not to do it. So when I asked the Health Minister, what evidence do you have, what advice have you received apart from the police telling you it's not a good idea, what health advice have you received um, that led you to this decision that this was not a good idea from a health perspective? And they refused to answer that question. Absolutely refused. And I can only lead myself to believe that they don't have any. And, <laughs> but how do we change that? Do we need to ourselves in front of the Look, I don't think there's anything wrong with a bit of civil disobedience. <laughs> Some of us may have you know, experimented with that from time to time. <laughs> uh, I see no wrong, nothing wrong with that. I, I, I honestly, when I saw the Premier's response this week saying it's common sense and logic, when I met with the Premier and talked to him about this issue, when I met with the Treasurer and talked to him about this issue, I didn't use the $200,000 figure on him, maybe I should have. Um, they, were, they just were so adamant that they were not going to move on this. And it was almost like, if only you hadn't asked us in November. If you'd asked us now, maybe we would have had a different position. Um, so, I, I, I can't answer it. I'm, I'm actually at a loss and I've been, because I thought, I oh, will get it. Yeah, you know, we all thought that. We will get it this week, you know. They'll they'll see sense, obviously, and they'll allow a discreet trial at maybe Ultra in Flemington. Um, but I, I'm not convinced now. I, I I feel like they've 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 dug their feet yeah. in and, and without without the police changing their position, without um, the police association or the police changing their position, we are going to be very hard pressed to get the Premier to change his position this summer. Can I, can I just follow up with that um, from a policy research perspective? Have we not done a very good job with the evidence um, in, in how we have presented it? Because we still do hear that argument that the, the evidence doesn't stack up or, or that, that people are not going there and understanding the evidence, which is sort of a part of what today is about. Look, I think that's a great question. I stay up late at night uh, wondering, geez, what else can we do? So we designed a website to make it really simple for people. We all travelled to Sydney uh, to put on a show and tell. Um, the evidence is there. The evidence has always been there. The, the, you know, and we've facilitated. You went on a little junket and took a whole bunch of cops with you. Um, uh, they saw with their own eyes. In a, in an actually, the, the inquiry in Victoria arrived at the conclusion that you should do pill testing. That's being ignored. Um, we put on a show and tell in New South Wales, and all of the political parties attended, um, apart from government. And I think we're now at a stage where there really is a concerted attempt to avoid 
hearing any evidence. I'm, I'm sorry, I mean, as a doctor and a scientist, I find that very difficult to process. But you've got all of the agencies. There's, there's nowhere that anyone can turn to to look for evidence which doesn't tell them they should be at least condoning a trial. So this is almost exclusively and entirely political. I mean, um, I realize uh, can I, sorry, can I just um, jump in here? I just, I just did have a thought. <laughs> um, now, because I mean, Andrew has put through through some very cogent arguments about the the shortcomings of the testing, and and those 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 arguments are relied upon um, very much by the police and very much by by the politicians. But maybe we have less talked about the health intervention. Um, maybe we have less. We have spoken less about the work that you do as a harm reduction worker, and we, ha we, and maybe that that could be the sideways that they need. The sort of the the well. Well, I'm still not happy with pill testing. I'm. I accept that this education and this health intervention is 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 useful and valuable. And the pill testing. Well, that's really just a loss leader. That's just to get the get the punters in, that's to get the young people in the door so we can start giving them some health intervention methods and, and ways to yeah, do it. So, so maybe that's the conversation. That's, being said at the that's, always, that's always right, Andrew. Out. Yeah. We, we need to test these pills so we can be sure they're safe. That's right. You're going to get someone like me who's going to weak people down and go, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll take that up. Like, if you take that argument out, then it becomes a... Can I, I, yeah. Hi, this is Hugo the Poet, and you're listening to 3CR. And by doing that, you're supporting community radio, an incredibly important institution in our times. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Come and at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchus Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. What does music feel like? And Psychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Uh, you just heard from the uh, question and answer session at the event Lifesaver or False Comfort at the Melbourne Multicultural Hub earlier this year, an event uh, that was um, meant to be a debate about pill testing but ended up more of a uh, discussion on different options. I think everybody's in agreement that something needs to happen. If you want to uh, watch those uh, the, the full Lifesaver or False Comfort video, you can find it on the Pennington Institute YouTube channel. Uh, so just look up Pennington Institute on YouTube. Now, the Dost movie was recently screened as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Uh, Dostmovie.com is the website, so you can go and uh, have a look at some of the information there and other screenings that are happening. Also find out details on when it will be released for general view. 
Uh, Dost also took out the Melbourne Documentary Festival Audience Award, so congratulations, and uh, the Australian Psychedelic Society were there at the Melbourne uh, Dost screenings uh, with a panel following the each of the screenings, different people each night, and on the Sunday night, uh, our host, Cam Duffy, from the Australian Psychedelic Society, hosted panellists Paul Likonitsky, uh, Executive Officer of Mind Medicine Australia, and Fiona Henrik, who is a, uh, I believe she's a clinical psychologist. I'll let them take it away. This is the Dose panel uh, from just three weeks ago at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival on 3CR. Starting with um, yourself, Paul, obviously neuroscience, um, the way psychologists can work in with that, especially when it comes to affective disorders like depression and interdependence ideas as part of your, I guess, scope, um, as well as looking at the way psychedelic research around the world has produced therapeutically and gained some positive results. What did you notice about that uh, journey the young woman um, went through? What did you notice about the treatment received and what really stood out for you? Oh, well, I'm exhausted. I, I think the, the main impression I had is just how damn hard it is. Uh, this is, you know, a woman who seems like she had incredible support around her and, you know, obviously some struggles in her childhood, but a pretty good one. And, um, you know, and, and she went into this, these mushroom trips, which did something, but not enough. And then she went into these iboga trips and they barely got her through. Um, you know, the, it was. It looked like an incredibly dedicated team and centre there that just kept going and going for as long as she needed it. Um, I guess I just I just feel the the enormity of the challenge for for so many people who are addicted to that degree. Um, in terms of you know therapeutic mechanisms that you referenced, I guess it, it wasn't easy to see what was going on for her a lot of the time. So. There wasn't um, a great deal of uh, view into her psychological subjective process a lot of the time, so it was hard to gauge exactly how that was happening for her. But clearly Iboga's got some pretty powerful neurochemical mechanisms of action, um, and it looked like mushrooms were doing what mushrooms tend to do, but it wasn't clear um, exactly what was going on for her. You were all kind of exposed to kind of the surface behaviour or the snippets of it from time to time, but we really um, don't know what's going on in the brain. We don't have brain imaging going on constantly, do we? So we don't know all these structural changes going on and how that's relating to her subjective experiences. So um, yeah, there's an interesting contrast you kind of mentioned there in terms of you know what's kind of going on, what we're aware of, what we see, what we don't see. Uh, Fiona. You've got a background, especially in um, transpersonal psychology, which is so such a significant um, canon of research and literature over the last hundred or so years, especially relating to other aspects of what people can identify with beyond themselves, and that play can play a really intrinsic part in their therapeutic journey, especially when their therapeutic journey is catalyzed by a psychedelic substance. What did you notice in that film? What was meaningful for you? For me, it was a really touching and stimulating documentary. I was quite moved by Adriana's experience. Um, what I noticed quite significantly was the, um, the role that plant medicine has to play in therapeutic applications for addiction and depression, and how 
there's a divergence between modern Western psychopharmaceutical treatment and plant medicine. That divergence is quite a profound one. That's what I noticed. Yeah, it was almost like there was um, this failed paradigm of just opioid replacement therapy. And it sounded like she was receiving some kind of therapy as well, talk therapy, but it wasn't very clear what she was getting out of that, was it really? And um, so there was this need for an alternative pathway. Uh, was there anything that any of you noticed that you think might have happened differently or could have worked better for her if it was sort of um, structured into her treatment? I think any clinical trial would need to have an assessment of her background history and family of origin before proceeding with the doses that they were using in the documentary. And I think that's the problem facing um, current applications of the use of psilocybin in, as a pharmaceutical. There needs to be regulatory practices involved and psychotherapeutic monitoring. Yeah, absolutely. A thyroid assessment to really understand what's going on here and what therefore we must treat and in what order and what protocols we can utilise to maximise the opportunity for the best possible therapeutic outcome. Um, that's something that you've been working on locally, Paul. Um, do you have any comments on just the way you've been focusing on getting that sort of started locally um, with reference, I guess, to what you might have observed during that film? Yeah, I mean, I guess clearly there's a need and a demand for alternative and plant medicine-based treatments for addiction and depression and anxiety, and people are, are often desperate and turn to the underground. It was interesting in this documentary how you know, they had gone to the extent of initiating a documentary on it, and they had done their Googling, but uh, that first uh, mushroom trip was pretty um, underprepared for, it looked like. Um, and I guess that's, that's probably the, the common trajectory. So, you know, in, in a regulated clinical context, it would look entirely different. There would be, like you say, a, a, you know, adequate assessment of, uh, of the individual, and then the standard clinical protocols these days include a number of psychotherapy sessions prior, and, um, and, and then, you know, supported trip sessions, and, and, and the program varies in length. Um, here in Australia, we're really just beginning the process. There's been obviously, I think a lot of people in the, in the audience would be aware of, of the last 15 years or so of research that's researched overseas, mostly in the US and also in the UK. Um, and tonight we saw a few of the people that have been leading the charge. Um, so Australia has only just uh, entered into the conversation, the, the first psychedelic trial kicks off in the next few months here in Melbourne, the St. Vincent's trial, which is using uh, psilocybin, uh, synthetic uh, psilocybin to treat um, depression and anxiety in people with a terminal illness. Um, and we're also in the process now of developing, just beginning to develop uh, therapeutic training protocols. Uh, a lot has been done over you know decades through the 50s and 60s, and uh, that continued underground uh, in, in, the, in the prohibition years and then uh, from about 2005 uh, there's been quite a substantial resurgence currently. There are about a hundred psychedelic trials that are just recently completed or active at the moment uh, all over the world and Australia now has, has one kicking off uh, in the next few months and, uh, and we're, we're planning 
subsequent trials here, hopefully in the next few years, there'll be many. Um, but the, the, you know, the challenge is, is uh, you know, quite wide. There are the challenges of, of adequate data. Uh, so currently, the gold standard in adequate data hasn't uh, come through. That's called phase three clinical trials. Two large phase three clinical trials kick off. Well, one's just kicked off and the other one in the next few months overseas. So probably a couple of years now uh, until we'll see uh, the chance of, of regulating psilocybin and MDMA as, as prescription medicines. Um, but they are, there's an enormous amount of work we need to do in order to prepare both uh, clinicians and, and, uh, and people who may participate in this treatment for it to work well. It's entirely different to anything else we've got. Well, in order to, for it to be legalised, there's a lot of underground psychotherapists operating mm. across the country that are using these for therapeutic application. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So then it's about bringing it into the, the legal domain of yeah. clinical protocols, obviously, and yeah. so people don't have to go underground and, you know, correct. under the more riskier conditions, potentially. That's not to say that necessarily it will be a more safer application. We're not sure if the, the misuse of psychedelics as a pharmaceutical yet. We simply don't have any data. Yeah, true. So now we'll open it up to you, the audience. If you hold up your hand, I'll come round and you can ask a question to our panellists. Uh, over here. You want to? <laughs> Um, I actually wanted to get uh, an opinion from all of you on this, and I don't know if other people felt this uh, in watching the film, but um, uh, as was uh, at the start of the movie, it felt to me like the people doing the documentary were being maybe a little bit pushy with the idea that maybe you can solve these problems with psychedelics. And I say that because, uh, so I'm the president of the Psychedelic Society, I see a lot of the things that come through our Facebook and our emails. And as you said, Paul, there's a lot of people that are desperate, looking desperately for solutions. And I understand that, but at the same time, I worry that in, in times of desperation that people might uh, end up just just going for something that, that, that there's not clear answers for or, or pushing themselves for something that really doesn't help. I mean, it looked like at the end, because they did have that whole, you know, follow-up, months follow-up, that's what I was going to ask before the end uh, happened and they had a big follow-up. But I, I guess I wanted some comments from you guys on, on how you felt about the, the ethics of how it was approached in the first place. I mean, knowing, of course, these guys aren't doctors, they're not um, psychologists, they're not, you know, they're, they're documentary makers, they were looking for a story, first and foremost. And they got a good story, but I just felt like, I don't know, some strange ethical things, so just wanted some comment on that. Yeah, my, you know, my simple answer would be, um, you know, I, I wouldn't advise going underground, but I totally understand it. And in that case, I mean, this woman is clearly saying she doesn't expect to live very long. Um, yeah, and, and they could have done their research, you know, a bit more, a bit better. And, uh, but in the end, they, they got it to somewhere that was pretty uh, effective. Um, ethically, a psychotherapist would um, ask for informed consent um, before any kind of procedure would take place that involves the application of psilocybin. So that would be advisable even in the underground setting, and as far as I know, that's taking place. 
just to add to that, I also feel like, you know, um, you're right that, that there's this kind of, as we see this uh, new wave of research and, and remarkable results coming out of the clinical trials, I think there is a kind of panacea mentality that, that has crept in for sure. And as you can see with her, um, you know, it really took a lot more than just getting getting psychedelics into her bloodstream that, that did it in the end, um, and and I I think any any simplistic ideas that you just have to go and you know consume psychedelics or meet Mother Iyer and all your problems will be solved I think is delusional in general. I'm sure she probably will need to continue to do work for the rest of her life to keep the walls at bay. Ethically, any recreational use doesn't tend to lead to lasting results. There needs to be psychotherapy as an adjunct to the psilocybin use. Yes, and just to reinforce that these are these are adjuncts. These are catalysts that can, uh, under the right conditions, surface content that you can work with meaningfully, and then integrate uh, therapeutically, um, which could mean changing the way you react to all kinds of different things, other people. Uh, the way you react to distress, this woman had a low threshold of distress tolerance, therefore she learned using painkillers with the way she copes with that. Unfortunately, that was a maladaptive method of coping, so she had to learn through the therapeutic process a more adaptive way of coping with this distress that she would experience. Um, and just to give a bit of clarification, iboga, that was about the, the neuropharmacology, essentially, uh, allowing the withdrawal of the biological effects to give her a bit of a baseline so that she could then work on the psychological aspect of, okay, what was the underlying mental health thing going on here that led to this um, pattern of opioid use to try and cope? So you need to work with the biological, restabilize your nervous system, and then you can look at, okay, now I'm okay to actually address the psychological. That might be the right kind of pattern, sort of order of approach with this kind of a, a young lady situation. Uh, any other questions? Um, what advice would you give to people for those who are thinking about taking on psychedelics to help their depression or anxiety? Like where, where would they go? Like where would they start? So as far as I'm aware, Erowid has a lot of information about microdosing and using um, different amounts of psilocybin for the treatment of depression and anxiety. Whilst as a clinician, we're not supposed to recommend underground websites, it is one of the more informative ones that can assist with such things. Um, obviously, to be under the treatment of a trained psychotherapist or psychologist would be um, ideal. And there's a lot of information on the web that will give you precautionary measures and, and things like if you've had a pre-existing history of psychosis, psilocybin isn't advisable and um, that sort of thing. So always, always check with a mental health practitioner whether it's a suitable form of treatment. And just maybe to add to that, that um, you know, the, these classical psychedelics are, are, are not toxic, so, you know, uh, all, you know, so many of the concerns about risks associated with classical psychedelics are exactly wrong. Uh, there's very little indication that if you, if you haven't got a, a predisposition to psychosis that you'll develop it. Um, all the cases that have been investigated where people, 
you know, run in front of traffic or jump out of buildings thinking they can fly. Usually these people have been quite unstable. Um, however, these are powerful substances and there are some powerful risks and it's really worthwhile paying a lot of attention to uh, set setting and, and cast, as these guys mentioned. So the state you go into the trip with, the environment and the people that, that you're with. And, and if you can take the time to find the right people to help you through it, that helps a lot, but that can take time. If you can find a shamanic guide or a spiritual counsellor or someone who's trained in facilitating these kinds of journeys, then go for it. Don't do it alone, basically. You don't take safety for granted ever when it comes to these things. It needs to be cultivated from the ground up and it should never be something that sort of trivialises it. Oh, I think things will work out. It's not about that. It's about actually really feeling on, on all different levels and um, feeling comfortable to talk about it very openly of what safety might mean for you or the people that you know who might be interested in these pursuits in the right, safe and um, well-educated domains. Uh, any other questions? A couple, two or three more minutes. Um, is the safety uh, of iboga well understood in terms of how different people might process it? And also, is the way that iboga, the mechanism action of iboga understood at all? So, I don't know enough about iboga to answer that uh, question fully. I believe the safety uh, profile of iboga is not fully understood and it's certainly not remotely as safe as the classical psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD and, and the like. Um, you know, people that are doing it underground are doing heart monitoring underground before they go in. Um, yeah, th there, there are all kinds of worrying effects. I actually just got an email from one of the lead iboga researchers in New Zealand last week who said, uh, you know, he said he, he, he's been researching ketamine and iboga for the last couple of years in a clinic in uh, Dunedin. And uh, he said, look, um, I'm concerned about the safety profile of iboga in general. Not sure if this is going to work. Yeah. And just to add to that a bit, um, it can have some cardiovascular risks to it. It's a very extended experience. It's not a classic psychedelic experience like mushrooms. It's 24 hours plus ordeal, and it needs to be medically supervised. There are some medically supervised uh, supervising clinics in Mexico that you can go to and there's uh, ECG monitoring so any cardiac incidents that occur can actually be uh, treated medically on site. So it does require medical monitoring, it's not something to go easy on. It is originally from Western African shamanic practices um, but we've got a different concept of safety perhaps than the approach to an ordeal kind of a thing. And there's a massive difference between a shaman using a plant medicine versus an ordinary individual using a recreational substance. So in terms of safety, um, there's also the psychological effects that need to be taken into account. And so that nurturing environment has to be maintained the whole time, and that's a lot of work, you know, and it, it is good to have, um, you know, a female there if, when there's a female there because they need to be taken care of by right kind of energy and that could require a female because that whole dynamic is all all plays into therapeutic process and people need to be felt need to feel like they're being taken care of throughout that very long arduous journey um you know it's not easy healing and um it isn't easy healing with iboga just like it isn't uh with conventional methods do we have any up the back maybe got a few more minutes
Um, they were mentioning in the film uh, combining traditional Western medicines and plant-based medicines. What would you say um, Adrian's impression was for combining those, and what are some of your impressions of yeah the combination of those two for therapy in the future? Um, there's certainly drug interactions between Western pharmaceuticals and plant medicines, and a lot of the drug interactions are not well understood or fully understood. Um, for example, if you take MDMA and you're on SSRIs, you can elicit serotonin syndrome, so there's a lot of health risks in terms of the drug interactions. But I think from the film, Adrian made a really interesting case about how the psychopharmaceuticals and the plant medicines were at loggerheads. I think there's a long, long way to go in the clinical research before we find a bridge that crosses both sides. Maybe one more quick question. I'm just really curious there, um, you speaking about that loggerhead situation and perhaps other options. Um, for example, I work with IRES, which is a um, amazing practice based on um, the ancient tantric yoga nidra uh, knowledge and system. And it came to me in watching the film that perhaps, you know, that intention setting, that embedding into the subconscious, rewiring, perhaps resetting some of those anxiety loaded systems mentally and emotionally may have gone a long way into smoothing some of the results perhaps some of the responses during the treatment are you aware of maybe or involved in combining these types of uh, technologies yes i've actually just ordered a book on kundalini tantra and yoga techniques for psychiatric disorders i'm i'm getting myself knowledge up I absolutely believe in the merging between East and West, 100%. Maybe just to add to that, that and relate to the previous question too, that um, while there isn't any, I don't know of any clear um, you know, positive combination between typical psychiatric medication and classical psychedelics, I mean, typically, you know, if somebody comes into a psychedelic trial on antidepressants, they have to fully taper off them because it seems like they have oppositional effects, uh, classical psychedelics and SSRIs, for example. Um, but there's certainly a lot to be done in terms of combining psychedelic uh, practice and other psychotherapies. So currently uh, there are a number of trials kicking off that, that look like this. There's MDMA with prolonged exposure therapy. So prolonged exposure is one of the best therapies for trauma, and MDMA therapy has been showing remarkable results too. So they're combining these two and possibly even using psycholytic doses, so slightly lower doses, and using prolonged exposure during the trip session rather than a non-directive uh, trip session. Um, and the same goes for um, you know the recent uh, amazing trial of Johns Hopkins that, that showed 80% um, uh, quit rate with uh, uh, nicotine-dependent smokers after psilocybin. They used uh, pretty long motivational interviewing uh, psychotherapy with psilocybin. Uh, so there's a lot to be done in thinking about ways in which psychotherapy can be blended with psychedelics. Thanks for your questions, everyone, and thanks very much to Paul and Fiona for your participation. Um, thanks for attending.
that panel recorded live Sunday, 28th of July at Cinema Nova, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival for Dost. Dostmovie.com is the website. Thank you to everyone who has been on the program today and the Australian Psychedelic Society for the audio that you just heard there. You can find more information about everything that you heard on social media and visiting our website, npsychedelia.org. Queering the Air is up next. Enjoy your Thursday, Arvo, and maybe we'll see you at 60 Smith Street for Sci School. Bye. This, this has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.